This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Well, I can tell you I've been turning into a World War II nut. I came across this quote from Winston Churchill as part of an audiobook I'm listening to. Success is walking from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. So uh, that is so true when it comes to taking an idea and turning it into something that becomes real, a product or a service. So I'll give you a little background. It's been a crazy week. I had emergency oral surgery, so I may sound a little bit off, but uh, it kind of helps me get ready for this week's show because we're going to talk about dealing with the unexpected. Um, like, for instance, it wasn't my plan to have surgery this week, but let's talk about ideas. When we first come up with what we think is a great idea, I'm willing to bet that we all have a vision. You know, we see that ultimate goal. We start off, we think it's the perfect idea, we lay out all the points to go from point A to point B, and then a lot of us have that vision of cashing out. We're going to hit that easy street, we're going to bank the money. We're going to go off and buy our yacht, buy our island, and uh, off we go. And then guess what? We get thrown the curveball. Now, what separates the innovators from the wannabes, the people who want to be innovators, who want to have those great ideas, who go off and create those great products, are those that can deal with the curveball. Now, most of us will get a curveball and either use it as an excuse or some kind of a sign that we should stop working on that idea. We should give it up. We should just throw it away. We should just tank it. We're done. Innovators will turn that curveball into an even bigger success, a bigger success than even the idea that started with. And let me give you a personal example. As you know, I started this show back in 2005 before iTunes, and the way you found new podcasts back then were through sites referred to as podcast directories. Now, I was fortunate to get some early traction because of Adam Curry highlighting my show on what he calls the daily source code. And one of the early podcast directories reached out to me to try their service out. Now, at that time, oh, I'm going to say there was probably 20, 30, maybe even 40 podcast directories, and they were all battling against each other. But one of the early podcast directories reached out to me to try their service out, and it was one called Odeo. Now, as a result, I was one of the very first users of Odeo, and actually, they had a great podcast directory, great community. Your you know listeners of the podcast could get on and comment about the show, and kept a really good um, tight timing with the archive, so users could go back and find your old shows, etc. It was a great service for those of us who were in the early days of podcasting trying to get the word out about our shows. Then guess what happened? iTunes comes out. And what do you think happened to the podcast directory market? It totally crashed. It evaporated overnight because iTunes became the directory for podcasters. Now, the real question that comes down to is what do you do? Here's Odeo, a relatively new service at the time getting totally blown away by Apple coming out with iTunes support for podcasting, their entire market goes away. What do you do? They changed. They didn't give up from the standpoint of just totally, you know, folding it up and splintering and flying off. As a team, they said that there's other opportunities for what things they wanted to work on. So what did they pivot to become? 
ODO transitioned themselves to become Twitter. Yes, that Twitter. That's right, the precursor for Twitter was a podcast directory. And it was created as a result of iTunes coming in and blowing away one market, and the team at ODO going over and finding an entirely new market and really driving those new kinds, uh, new kinds of service, in this case, Twitter. Now, there are hundreds of, of examples. So the question for you is, how will you handle the curveball when it comes? And don't fool yourself, it will come. Now, some advice based on my own experience. Now, I did 13 startups before I got my first cash out. That's right, 13 attempts. 12 were total busts, meaning the horse got shot out from underneath me. So how do you handle the curveball? Rule number one is don't panic. It's easy to panic. It's hard to keep yourself in check. When things start getting rough, you get those curveballs thrown at you, you want to throw the towel in, you want to run for cover, don't panic. Second step is, is this a long-term change or is this a squirrel? Right? Squirrel now becoming that term of that shiny new thing that or some piece of information that's in the headline of some blog that gets everybody all riled up, right? Is this a real change or is this a squirrel? To figure that out, ask who's bringing the change. If it's iTunes coming in with a podcast directory, that's a real change. The other question is, is the change real? Does it impact time or money? Those are the two metrics that I always look at when I'm looking at trends and new things coming out. Is it time? or a money? Does it impact either one of those two? Because if it does, the likelihood of it becoming sticky goes up significantly. And is that a hype versus a weak signal? Watch and track the weak signals. Those things that are kind of early, don't jump on them right away. Timing is everything, but track them. Now, if the change is real and you're going to need to make a pivot, take a look at what you have. Take a look at all the work you've done disassemble what you have, and I use a tool called Scamper to see if any elements of what you have can become part of the new idea. Scamper stands for substitute, combine, adapt, modify or magnify, put the other uses, eliminate, rearrange. So go through all the assets you have, everything you've developed, break it all apart, Look at all the element pieces, see if you can recombine them to create something totally new. And you never know, you might be the ODO that becomes Twitter. When you come up with those list of ideas, rank them, go out and test them. And when you find something, pivot. Don't hesitate. A lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of idea innovators want to hold on to the original core idea. They won't let go. But you got to pivot. And last, if it's a squirrel, then Get focused on your idea and execute. It is important that you not get hung up on chasing the new shiny thing because you'll never spend enough committed time to actually turn it into something that is real. Now, the point here is, is wherever we start, it's rarely where we end up. So be prepared for the change that are coming. And the key, again, is if you prepare... You won't panic, and you'll handle the craziest, the absolute craziest of curveballs. Now, back to my 13 attempts. If I had to 
go back and give myself my own advice now all these years later from all these startups starting off with a small little consulting firm in Evansville, Indiana to my tours of duty in Silicon Valley to venture-backed companies and spinoffs from universities to you name it. And if I look back on where I probably, if I had to do it over again, I would focus on probably sticking with more of those rather than folding the tent too early. You know, it, the, the, the immediate reaction is, is when the going gets rough, you fold your tent, you bag it, you're done, and off you go. You go off and try to do something else. But I would, I would, if I was giving myself my own advice, I would stick with it a little bit longer, drive to that persistence, and persistence is important, right? Persistence is that thing where, you know, you, you think you're at the end of the ropes and you just make that one extra step. That next step could be that breakthrough that turns into something that really becomes uh, a big success. So... So again, if I was looking back across, you know, my uh, 12 blowouts, um, I would probably have stuck with it longer. And I would have gone through some of those and used Scamper or other creativity tools to kind of look at all the assets that we had created in order to figure out what it is that we were going to change to, where the pivot was going to go. Take advantage of the assets you've created find those new opportunities, and go off and find the, the new markets. So again, substitute, combine, adapt, modify, or magnify, put to other uses, eliminate, rearrange, and find those elements that you can uh, work with. So, so again, from the standpoint of be prepared, the better prepared you are, the better you're going to have uh, at finding those new opportunities. So coming up, we will, I'm going to have a friend join me here this morning who's jumped into a space long before anybody else saw the opportunity and he twisted, turned, and pivoted. Sounds like a 50 song. His way to success based on the curveball thrown um, and stuck with it over a dozen years. So stay right there. You don't want to miss this. I'm Phil McKinney. This is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. Talk Radio. Tom Kelly, founder of IDO, has this great quote, fail often so you can succeed sooner. Uh, last year, I invited Tom to give a dinner talk at a CEO retreat I was hosting. Uh, you know, Tom is the, the founder of IDO, very well-known design firm in Silicon Valley, and the audience was about a dozen CEOs from small, medium, all the way up to large companies. And his talk was on why CEOs need to fail more if their organizations are going to succeed. Um, and I can tell you from the reaction from the audience, being told to fail is not something CEOs are comfortable in hearing, much less doing. 
But we must all learn to fail, learn from it, and fail again. It's just one more step on the process to success. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations, and we're here to show you how to take your ideas and change the world. And we do this by bringing top innovators to come into our innovator's garage and share their story. Now, what I love, uh, what I call true innovators. True innovators are those that come up with ideas that they can't not do. And they handle the curveballs as they come their way to achieve ultimate success. With today's guest, I've had an early front row seat when he got bitten by that idea. I've known DP Bankatesh for more than 20 years. He's the co-founder of Importal, which was recently purchased by Broadsoft, which created a new group called Broadsoft Design, which DP now runs. So, hey, DP, how are you doing? Great, Phil. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> now, we've known each other for 20 years, and it takes a radio show to get us into the same room <laughs> here in D.C. So. That's right. <laughs> Uh, before we talk about Importal um, and really, you know, where, where you've been at in the last couple of years, um, I wanted to see, uh, you know, I, I could see you as an innovator, as an entrepreneur. Back when we first met, you were coming, you actually moved into a company that I was in at the same time. Um, you had uh, finished up your MBA. But go back even further, <laughs> you know, did you have that kind of entrepreneur bug? Was there some early sign if, you know, if you go back and... If I, go, if I go ask your brother sure, as an example. Sure, sure. You make it sound like I'm 800 years old, keep <laughs> talking about going way back. Um, no, uh, surprisingly. I mean, I people do ask me this question. I'm not one of those kids who grew up, uh, you know, with a lemonade stand and always wanting to start my business. I, um, you know, as you mentioned, we worked together at CSC, uh, very much the corporate track. After that, I went to McKinsey. Uh, did consulting uh, for you know telecom and media companies. I was based out of Hong Kong, uh, so I wouldn't say I'm one of those born entrepreneurs. But there was always a desire to to do new things. Uh, you know, whether it was getting up. I grew up in India. I got up and moved to the U.S. I you know I work in Cincinnati, then moved to the West Coast. Uh, we met in Newport Beach, and then. Uh, you know, convince myself to move back to the East Coast. So I was always looking for new things and new ideas. I had that in me, but I wouldn't say entrepreneurship was something that um, that I had from the time I was a little kid. But it was something that once it's once I got bit by the bug, um, and it happened in Hong Kong, we can talk about that later, I couldn't shake it off. Well, I, I can go back and remember getting some weird early morning 2 a.m. phone calls from you from Hong Kong when you were at McKinsey. Um, but if we go back, you know, the one thing that, that, that I've always admired about you is, is, is your ability to really see those really early ideas long before anybody else. You know, I remember you standing in my office, pounding on the table, trying to convince me on, on some of these ideas. And the one that, that you really kind of latched onto for the last 15 years has been mobile apps. You were in before anybody else even knew what the idea was even about long before sure. iPhone or app stores or any of this. So, you know, let's talk, how, where, did, where did that spark come from? Because you tried to convince me on it and I was kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. You know, but you, you really latched onto that early. What was it? What was the thing that, that you were working on or that you saw that nobody else saw? Well, for me, I think, you know, the mobile idea was, it was a matter of when, not a matter of if. If you look at the world of computing, and I think your audience is familiar with it, is there's always these shifts. 
people say they come every 10 years, maybe a dozen years, is you had the mainframe era, which lasted 10, 20 years, although there are, some of them are still running some of the most critical info, uh, systems now. And then it moved to what I'd call the client-server shift, and then we were in, in the middle of the web shift, if you want to call it, in the late 90s. And going into 2000, I kept thinking, okay, what's the next big thing? And, you know, mobile was the next big thing, not so much in terms of mobile apps, but in terms of you had these massively centralized systems, which was the mainframe, moving into more microcomputers and mini computers, but you could already see portability and contextual information was the wave of the future. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, I'd be lying if I said I knew there would be a smartphone or there would be uh, Apple entering the space, but what I knew was mobile computing and mobile as a way of accessing information was definitely going to be something big. Uh, I wanted to be a part of it. And and quite honestly, I worked on a project when I was out in uh, Hong Kong with a very large um, hardware manufacturer. And we were doing one of these uh, studies where we were looking at how can we help them move into the next big wave? And this is when you were at McKinsey. Yes, yes. Um, so it was it was a combination of not just while I was at McKinsey, it was while I was at CSC, and then just looking at the marketplace, and most importantly, talking to customers, right? Our customers were, uh, as you know, telcos in Asia, in Europe, uh, and and the United States, and both telecom companies, uh, computing companies, and then consumer electronics companies were all starting to rub up against each other. And if you look at mobile computing today, and if you look at the mobile handset, uh, they were not dominated by companies that, that are dominant today. Apple and Google were not in the uh, traditional telephony business, but even then you could see that mobile and mobile communications was going to be more than just communications. It was about once you have a mobile device, what else could you do with it? Yeah, and, I, you know, and this gets into the point of, though, you know, you jumped in like unbelievably early, <laughs> you know, long before anybody else, right? You know, and, and the listeners have heard me rant on this, you know, the difference between a good idea and a great idea very rarely has anything to do about even the core idea or the technology or the offering that you're making into the marketplace. It really does come down to the timing. So so if you had to estimate how far out ahead you were, how far did you miss the uh, the timing, you think? I'd say I or was... Or did you miss the timing? Well, actually, that's it's an interesting point. I don't think I was ahead... Well, it sounds pompous to say I was ahead of myself or the market, but I think we were off on timing by a good five to seven years. Mm -hmm. I started the company in May of 2000. You could argue the seminal moment in the new wave of mobile was July 2000 when, 2007 when the iPhone came out. Um, but I think in terms of not being off on timing is we knew that mobile was going to be big. We just hung in there, did our pivots, did our twists, and did our turns, as you mentioned. But because the market was going to eventually happen, we just perseverance paid off for us in the end. So, DP, when we come back in the next segment, I want you to give us three to four key successes based on your experience. Is that okay? Sounds great. Great. So, um, so here's your chance to learn from someone who's seen it all. And so, uh, when we come back, DP is going to take us to, to school here a little bit, give us kind of. You know, his uh, years of experience looking at this and uh, get back to you. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations. Biz Talk Radio.
This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. As we were talking in the last segment, perseverance has taken one more step beyond that point when you think you're done. You just can't go any further, but you take that one more step, and then you do it again. Now, Napoleon Hill describes it much better than I do. Napoleon, his quote is, most great people have attained their greatest success just one step beyond their greatest failure. So, in the first last segment, we were talking with D.B. Bankatesh, founder of Importal, which recently got acquired by Broadsoft, about kind of jumping into a, a market segment, which today everybody thinks is the hottest thing out there. You got to be in mobile apps. Only D.P. was in it 15 years ago, and it has done the pivots, the the, the transitions, the changes, um, all of the, the 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 gyrations necessary to be in early and stick with it. So, and I'd ask D.P. to kind of step up and uh, play a professor role. So, are, are you ready to play that role now, D.P.? You're going to give us a, some good uh, pointers here. I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, if you're listening live to the show right now, you can participate via Twitter. Just use the hashtag KILive. I'll field your questions, and we'll see uh, if anything uh, interesting comes up for, uh, for DP. So remember, you can get us on Twitter right now uh, using uh, the hashtag KILive, and, we'll, uh, and I'll pass those questions on. So go ahead, DP. So what, what are those three or four things? You've got 15 years of... Uh, of uh, jumping in early on an idea and just sticking uh, 15, with it. 15 years of mistakes is what I'd like to call it. <laughs> I think the first one, you know, we talked about it, you mentioned it a minute ago, is perseverance. Um, you know, once you jump into anything, whether it's a business or an idea, uh, it almost always changes. It changes because of the market, changes because of the timing. Um, my favorite quote about planning and and you know building the ultimate 100 page business plan and how it all goes out the window it doesn't come from an entrepreneur it actually is a quote uh, that i use and i love is by mike tyson and um, <laughs> mike yes. mike tyson is a yes, quote mike okay, tyson, I got, yes okay hit, hit me with it well he said that everybody has a plan till they're punched in the mouth <laughs> And it's sometimes running a business or launching a product is, is all about that is you, you launch something. We launched M-Portal in 2000, like I said, and then right off the bat, May of 2000 was the worst time to launch a company. But we didn't give up. We always felt that there would be, you know, mobile was the way to go. We hung in there, went through the, the dot-com bust, uh, you know, 9-11 and all of the other, you know, difficulties we had. But there was something fundamental that we believed in that um, consumers around the world. And one advantage I had was having lived for three years in Hong Kong before moving back to the U.S., I could just see simple things like text messages and how useful they were, that people use text messaging in Asia, especially in, city, in countries like the Philippines more than they used phone calls. And this is a precursor to apps and WhatsApp and some of these things where I could see that once you had a mobile device, people used them differently than computers. They didn't use them as computing devices. They didn't, they didn't use them as communication devices. They used them as a slight variation of both. I didn't know what it was, but I knew there was something bigger there. That was one. I think in terms of uh, other advice for entrepreneurs or people starting businesses is to some degree, um, and I know this because it took me 15 years, is there is no shortcut. 
And uh, I oh, can come em- on. You can't, you can't, you're not doing the napkin thing? I can, and, uh, I can emphasize this, you know, because I have looked for the shortcut for 15 years, and then it wasn't there, so we took the long route. And the reason why I say there's no shortcut is a lot of times pundits and, you know, you have the one slide where people think this is the answer. And it's never that straightforward. It's more you start the project, you launch the product, and then you figure out what happens. And I think the successful people are not necessarily uh, the most talented, the fastest, or the best product, but the ones who really look at the market and then adapt to it. Speaking of quotes, the other quote, uh, my mom uh, was a zoology professor, so we always talked about Darwin. And people misquote Darwin. I think the quote, which is survival of the strongest or survival of the fittest, is what everybody throws out, but it's actually wrong. What Darwin actually said was the, the species that would survive is the one that was most adaptable to change. And he was talking about how you react when something goes wrong. I mean, so, you know, the, 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 that, uh, that's a perfect quote from just from the standpoint of just being an entrepreneur, but even being, you know, look, I spent 10 years at Gila Packard, right? You yes. Know, you know, you could think of it as, okay, why did the dinosaurs go extinct? Yeah. Not very adaptable. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, uh, a, a current example, I was watching the Wimbledon finals today, and then you have uh, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. It was a great match, two sets into it, and Federer was very strong, and suddenly it rained. Clearly not something that they teach you in tennis academy, and you're talking about two of the best players in the game. But the way both people reacted to it, and you know, I'm, in no way am I sliding Federer for having lost today's game, but you could see that little 15-minute delay messed the rhythm up. So you cannot plan for things. So my advice has always been launch the product, jump into the business, don't wait for the perfect time so how do you deal with fear, though? I mean, you know, one of the, the things I think that hold a lot of people back that may think they have the world's greatest idea, the greatest product, is that fear. They want the, they want the perfect answer. They want to know 100% that what they're doing is the right thing. Well, I mean, I think to some degree it's good to have a little bit of fear so you don't do stupid things. And I'm not talking about just jumping into the deep end of the pool before you know how to swim. But I think in terms of fear, it's you what I'm talking about is you cannot, on paper or in a spreadsheet, predict and plan for every possible incoming problem. So what I'm talking about is, do you launch at 51% readiness? Do you launch at 80% readiness? Do you launch at 100% readiness? Now, with a lot of these things, obviously, if you're launching a, a rocket into outer space, maybe you wait for the 100% readiness. But in businesses and its products, so you know, for example, there's a new OS of iOS coming out. Do you have to wait till it comes out to launch your product? Do you launch your product today and then adapt based on some of the changes? Those are things that I think people sometimes say, I'll wait till the perfect moment. I'll wait till the next big thing and I'll jump on it. And I think the way to do it is, uh, if you look at our experience with Mportal, we launched our business focused on mobile mobile applications and, and data when there was no smartphones, where there was no iOS. But because we were in it, in many ways right now, even though we're at Brotsoff, our credibility comes from the fact that we have been through thick and thin, and it doesn't matter who the market leader is. It doesn't matter whether there's a new Windows 10 device coming out or a new iOS uh, release coming out. We are 
capable of adapting to it. So I think I would emphasize, in addition to perseverance, be adaptable, adaptable if that's the word for it, uh, and have a healthy dose of fear. It's not that you should not be afraid. It's just don't let fear rule your decision making. Right, right. So give me another piece of advice. You've got 15 years here. Maybe talk a little bit about timing, because I know we've had, sure. you and I have had long conversations on, you know, enthusiasm and getting in early versus fear yep. holding you back. How do you get the timing right? I think the time, you can't get the timing right. So I think this is one of those things where you play the long game, right? So you don't try to come in and always hit a home run or always throw the 80-yard touchdown pass. So you keep chugging out away. You complete the five-yard pass, then the three-yard pass, and then the two-yard run, and then you get your first down. And then you take your break, and then you come back. You always know you want to throw the touchdown, but don't try to throw it on the first play. One last thing I'd like to talk about is your team. I've been very fortunate in surrounding myself with people who are obviously smarter than me, but also had the wherewithal to never say die. And in the long run, it's all about timing. Is, is your team willing to stick it with you. And I think I'm very proud of the team and what we accomplished at M-Portal because we all hung in there and we had a great outcome. Right, and, I th and what's interesting is, is your team has been here from the beginning. So it's not only been you 15 years, but you've got some great people on your team that have been here and all bought in. So the role of how important it is for them to also be bought into your vision, I think can't be understated. It cannot be understated because it's one thing to say this is the vision, but you need to execute. And no, nobody does anything on their own. There is no, even even in an individual sport like tennis, you have a team and trainers, and both the people today thank their team. And I think I can't emphasize that more. Yeah, so, hey, we're going to wrap up this segment. Hey, DP, thanks for giving us the time. I really appreciate it. If people want to hear more about you and what you're up to, where can they find you? Well, I'm on Twitter at DPV007. Oh, yeah. There's a whole story on the 007 uh, James Bond thing. I know. Or you could look me up at Broadsoft's site. Great. When we come back, I've got a killer question that will cause you to look at your existing customers differently. And that's important. You have to look at your existing customers as one source. But how do you look at them differently is key. So I'm Phil McKinney. This is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. Is talk radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing, killer innovation. In this segment of the show, we talk about what I call killer questions. And I'm a big believer in the power of questions. The questions are basically a mind hack. Your brain cannot stop yourself from answering one. So what is this week's mind hack? It's a question around your current customers. So here it goes. Who is using your product in a way you never intended? And how are they using it? So who is using your product or service in a way you never intended? Now typically, once a product is sold, it's pretty much out of your control. 
you may have an idea why people will buy it and what they'll do with it, but the most you can ever do is guess. So why are you assuming that you know what your customers actually like and value from your product and how they use it? Go out and find out for yourself. The one example is uh, a site that I just absolutely love, which is ikeahackers.net. So ikeahackers.net is a place where people can show off the ways in which they have repurposed and customized IKEA products, such as hanging uh, a Milan bed frame to the wall so it can flip up like a Murphy bed. Uh, one person is using the printed curtains as a fabric for a dress. Um, and the best one I love, given I'm a grandparent and now dealing, you know, helping my kids with my grandkids, financially strapped parents of baby twins. And what they did was is they created a feeding station by cutting two baby seat-sized holes in an IKEA kitchen table. And they literally set the, the baby seats into the two holes and allows them to feed the twins simultaneously. Now, so it's easy to lock yourself into thinking that you fully understand who's using your product and how they're using it. Um, and in fact, you know, you, you intended it to be used a certain way. Guess what? Customers don't follow the rules. So here's a personal story. There was a bakery near where we lived in Silicon Valley, and this was happened about four or five years ago. Uh, in one case, my wife and I were visiting a, a bakery, this bakery, and I noticed that it had an HP TouchSmart set up in the corner of the counter. Now, this is when I was still the CTO at HP. Now, normally the TouchSmart is used as an office automation or it's used in the home. It's kind of a PC and a kitchen nook. But in this case, um, it was being used for something totally different. It comes with tons of apps, but in this case, some high school kid that worked at the bakery sat down, wrote an app for the TouchSmart to allow the bakery to show off the, their wedding cakes, their cookies, their custom pastries that they made. Customers could come in and think of it really as a kiosk that they could flip through, look at wedding cakes, place their order, and have it completely done in the whole process. Now, again, this, this app was written by a high school kid who happened to work in the bakery and turned it into this very cool kiosk. Now, I was impressed, to say the least, and stunned that my team at HP had missed such an obvious use of something that we had worked so hard on. So what did we do? One is I talked to the kid who wrote the app. I talked to the owner of the bakery, and we... HP jumped on the idea of using the product as a core platform for these touch kiosks. So today, if you go into a Sam's Club or you visit Chicago O'Hare Airport or you go to a lot of places where you see these touchscreen kiosks, in many cases, it's actually this product, TouchSmart with some software, that actually is being used to create these kiosks. So the lesson, the person buying your product doesn't see it as an end solution. They see it as a tool that will help them solve a problem. Your customers look at what you're delivering as a tool, a tool for them to achieve their objective. And remember, your objective is to sell your product. Their objective is to solve a problem. Their objective is not to buy a product. Their objective is to solve a problem. So ask yourself, what problems and needs are you looking to address with your product? Are you too tightly focused on what you believe your customer's problems and needs to be that you're missing out on potentially huge opportunities? 
How can you, you identify existing customers and observe how they use your product? Now, here's an interesting example on this one. This was, well, I'm going to say four or five years ago. We were coming up and working on some new product ideas for tablets, uh, media player devices. And, you know, there were some products already in the market. And we were interested in seeing how did customers actually use this. So rather than doing the typical ship the product and using focus groups, like uh, most companies would use these days, we actually, a bunch of us flew to New York, and we literally took very crude, rough models and randomly went into Starbucks stores around Manhattan and literally walked up to people and said, do you mind, can I sit down for 30 seconds, and can I describe this thing to you and tell me what you think? Now, that was part of the market study. What was really, I mean, mind-blowing, surprising, was the number of customers who then invited us back to their apartment. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know how many people I would be willing to meet randomly in a Starbucks in Manhattan, have a 30-second conversation, and then invite them back. But we went back and we did these observations and with how people were using these products were completely different. So, how can you identify existing customers and observe how they use your product? Get up out of the chair, go look. And is there a way to give your potential customer an opportunity to play with it and use the product and let them figure out the best use for it? So your assignment this week, go out and find five ways your customers are using your product or service in a way you never considered. This is what I call an idea quota. Just as you go to the gym to work out your muscles, the killer questions with an idea quota will exercise your creative muscle, but only if you actually do something. If you think you have one that is unique, share it with me by sending it to phil at killerinnovations.com, and I'll share it with an upcoming show. So um, as we wrap up the show this week, um, I want to just uh, highlight a few things. We're in, we are in the process of rebuilding the killerinnovations.com site, so go over there and check it out. I think as of today, it's still the old site. We're probably another week, week and a half before it launches. Um, and uh, and so go out and check that out. Next week, our guest is Raul Sue. This is the guy who started Microsoft Ventures. Again, another longtime friend. Be a great um, person for you to, to visit. Uh, visit KillerInnovations.com and also go over and visit BizTalkRadio.com and check out all the great shows that are available over on BizTalk. And while you're over there, grab the mobile app. You can listen to the Killer Innovations and all the other shows live. And again, uh, thank you for listening. I'm Phil McKinney, and you've been listening to Killer Innovations. We'll see you next week. Bye. The opinions you hear on Biz Talk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, Biz Talk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on Biz Talk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about Biz Talk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com.